Hello and welcome to Resolutions, a podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. For those of you tuning in for the first time, this podcast is a project by the ABA section of Dispute Resolution to increase the avenues where we can connect. One of six hosts serves as interlocutor, engaging in conversation with members of the dispute resolution community about topics of interest in the field. My name is Reiko Brangachari and I'm one of your hosts. I'm the executive director of the New York International Arbitration Center and serve on the education committee of the section. As this podcast goes live, we remain in pandemic with pockets of the world opening in different stages and with different fervor. Please stay vigilant, dear friends, with safety and good health. Today, we're sitting down with Chuck Howard, currently executive director of the International Ombudsman Association. For almost 30 years, Chuck represented ombuds offices at major corporations, universities, research facilities, and other organizations throughout the United States as independent counsel. A friend of the section, he was past chair of the ombuds committee of the section and a consummate author, advocate, and thought leader. Welcome, Chuck. We are delighted to have you. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. So for our listeners tuning in, let's start with some basic overview. In 2011, you published the organizational ombuds. It speaks to the role of operations of this function. Um, what is, if you can, scope sort of um, the origin of the ombuds um, and evolution? And really, what is an organizational ombuds? Uh, sure. I'll try to keep that down to a manageable um, time here. But uh, the ombudsman concept originated in Sweden in the 18th century, early 18th century when the king uh, vacated the country and appointed a, um, an individual to oversee the operations of government. And in the uh, early 19th century, uh, once they had a parliament, it became a lawyer, investigator, a person who uh, was responsible for the proper administration of the government. And um, it served a very important function as a check and balance on uh, the government. I think it was first introduced to the United States in the early 1960s in a law review article by uh, a prominent administrative law professor, Kenneth Culp Davis, who uh, had a sabbatical year, spent the world traveling, and wrote a law review article touting the benefits of an ombuds, uh, as it was called, ombudsman program at that time. And he was thinking more of a governmental official, but in the United States, it really kind of morphed uh, into a whole variety of different types of ombuds from the original classical ombuds, which are government officials that investigate and are independent, but uh, almost like inspectors general now, to advocate ombuds for nursing homes and prisoners and uh, certain segments to organizational ombuds. And this was for uh, entities that are non-governmental bodies, including some governmental bodies, but it's characterized by uh, being independent, um, informal, meaning they're not an official record keeper for the organization, and they're not part of management. They're impartial, they're neutral. Uh, they, they don't advocate for uh, employees or the constituent group or the management, and they're confidential. And it's the confidentiality that uh, allows them to be so special here. They're in effect an informal channel uh, in contrast to formal channels like HR and management and compliance officers and 
uh, that sort of thing. So as it has uh, developed in the United States, it got a big boost from universities during the Vietnam era and student riots. It got a big boost in the 1980s from the fraud and procurement scandals of the 1980s, where there was seen as a need for a resource that would uh, help provide guidance to people um, and that could be confidential and help them uh, resolve conflicts or uh, surface issues. So it, it really does both of those things. And um, in effect, what an ombuds as we now know it does, and uh, this is what I've been doing for the last few years for the International Ombuds Association, is help organizations create ombuds programs. Um, they're there to assist people at all levels of the organization uh, or whatever the constituency is. They're really a no barrier. Uh, they're, they're not a reporting channel. So if you want to report something, you need to go to compliance or your manager or HR, or, um, the general counsel. They listen to people, help, sort, help them sort their issues. They don't make decisions. They don't do investigations. They don't make policy or business decisions. But they do act as a source of information. You know, what are the policies? Where can I go? They explain the process. Uh, they work on the full spectrum of issues from uh, sexual harassment to fraud and compliance to uh, conflict with uh, your boss or other people. And they're a place where you can go before you take action. You know, many times people are afraid or unwilling uh, to go to a formal channel. I call that the blue uniform problem where people just are reluctant to report something to these formal channels, which are like the police. Um, they're, they're afraid of retaliation. They're afraid if they're wrong. Um, and so this is a place where you can kind of find out what your options are and what you might do uh, for self-help or how you could surface an issue, even if you're not identified. So they're very valuable. Um, in that they often will help provide mediation or facilitation for conflicts. And, and so that's how they help people, um, but they help organizations because essentially they're capturing uh, issues, be it conflict or, or concerns over misconduct or somehow things that are wrong that might not otherwise um, get caught. And so, you know, what happens when your formal channels are part of the problem? any large size organization is gonna have misconduct at some level. And so it's a question of when and where, and the ombuds can help develop options for surfacing those issues. And because they're there to help everybody, this means left and right and high and low in the organization, senior managers, middle managers and employees, um, they, they really are there to help everybody on virtually any kind of issue. And so for the organization, they can uh, reduce the uh, conflict, improve the climate, and um, help provide trend and, and um, uh, kind of systemic issues. They're not going to breach confidence. So managers have to learn to live with the idea that ombuds may know things that the managers uh, don't know, uh, and they're not going to break the confidence unless there's an imminent threat of serious harm, which the law would require someone to break confidence Anyway, so in that sense, they're a listening post. So that's how it came to the United States. Uh, I will say that it's not just the United States. They've, there are large multinational corporations that have these offices around the world now. 
they're in government, they're in universities, they're in businesses. Um, and in my view, uh, there should be more of them because they really do help people and organizations. Thanks so much, um, Chuck. To our guests, I'm familiar with this process. Consider now whether you have used or will use the Ombuds Committee or office within your organization. Chuck underscores, which is important, independence and impartiality, informality and confidentiality that really imbue um, the process. So Chuck, you've had an eclectic career to date, litigator, general counsel to ombuds, um, also serving, for example, on the ad hoc advisory group to the US Sentencing Commission. This is the body that recommends revisions to the federal organizational sentencing guidelines. Um, so with all of this background and backdrop, how and why did you get involved as a lawyer for ombuds and why IOA? Well, um... I was fortunate enough to be at a larger firm in Connecticut, which means it's probably nationally a smaller firm. But at the time I left, we had about 180 lawyers. I'd spent about 15 years as the chair of the litigation department and had a wonderfully varied practice. Representing ombuds was never most of what I did, but um, I, as part of a team from my firm, made a pitch to a large multinational corporation to do more business for them at one point. Point. And the first case they gave me um, was in the late uh, uh, 1980s, I think maybe 1990. Um, and it was to defend the confidentiality of communications uh, between the plaintiff and their ombudsman. And at the time, um, it was in federal court. Uh, we could find very little law on how to protect that confidentiality. And so um, the only case I could find was out of Iowa, district court case in which the judge had used um, the state statutory scheme for prison ombuds to protect confidentiality using a, a test under federal rule of evidence 501. And so we, we met the four elements of that test that uh, confidentiality was essential to the relationship. People had relied on that. It served very important public policy purposes. And um, we put together a motion for protective order with extensive documentation showing how this multinational corporations program had been created in response to the procurement fraud scandals of the 1980s. And um, we also claimed that it was an implied contract that the program had created, that the company had created the program um, as a independent, confidential, informal resource. No one had to use it, but if they did, they shouldn't be able to change the terms of that program for everybody else, which is what the attempt to depose the ombudsman would do. And we had a very prominent, uh, later prominent federal judge, Jose Cabranes, who's been on the second circuit for many years uh, as our district judge, and he ruled in our favor on both grounds. And so from that uh, case, and for me, it was just another case initially, um, I became fairly familiar with the history and evolution of ombuds the way they work. And um, soon after that, I got a call from another national, international company. Um, and, and from there, you know, many companies are across the country, uh, universities, national defense labs, asked me to help them set up ombuds programs and uh, document them and then defend them if they had challenges to their confidentiality. So that's, that's how I got involved in that. And I continued to do that for about 30 years, as you said at the beginning. 
um, I, including even when I was general counsel of our firm uh, for the last five years I was there. Um, but I always felt that the ombuds profession was ill understood uh, by those outside and, and almost necessarily so because they operate behind a veil. I mean, their confidentiality means they can't really tout um, their successes, um, how they have surfaced issues, sometimes behind the scenes, uh, sometimes in systemic reports. And I, I felt that um, many of the ombuds were looking inward uh, rather than kind of outward, expanding the um, uh, public awareness of this profession. And that's what really led me in, in 2010 to write the first book, uh, The Organizational Ombudsman, Origins, Roles, and Operations, A Legal Guide. And, and that has, over the years, it's still, I think, a, a sound book. Uh, it's been referred to as kind of the leading treatise for organizational ombuds. But it's a legal, it's a legal textbook. It's got cases, it just discusses various legal theories. It's hard to read for a non-lawyer. And it's not overly persuasive because of its thick thickness. It's 640, 50 pages, something like that. Um, and so uh, as I was approaching the, the end of my time um, as a practicing lawyer after 44 years, I was approached by the leading organizational ombuds group, uh, IOA, the International Ombudsman Association, um, whether I'd be interested in becoming their first ever executive director. And I felt that it was just too good of an opportunity to pass up that I really might be able to um, provide some assistance there in helping uh, spread the word and be kind of outwardly focused uh, to describe for organizations why this is such a good uh, benefit for both the organization and people. So I felt lots of organizations create these programs. And along the way, I decided, you know, what we really needed was a, a simpler, more direct book. And so that's what the new one is, the Practical Guide to Organizational Ombuds, How They Help People and Organizations. And I, I took a very different approach here. We don't have a lot of footnotes in this book. It's about 300 and, I don't know, 20 or 40 pages, something like that. And um, about a third of it is my answering, um, in my own words, uh, the hard questions that leaders, lawyers, and others have asked about, you know, why do we need this when we have a compliance or whistleblower um, uh, laws and policies or a hotline? Um, how does this react to um, HR? How do you preserve confidentiality? And so I wanted to give my answers, but more than anything, what I wanted to do is to have assemble a lot of stories, uh, actual examples, not composite, not hypothetical, but actual stories um, of what ombuds did. And, and the deal was this, I had ombuds send them to me. So I know who gave them to me, but I've homogenized them so that nobody can tell where they are. We don't use names or anything else, but they tell the story. And they're very powerful. And any sort of description I have in answering these questions, I think pales by comparison to this, the revealing power of these stories. Because when you read them, you, you go, ah, I get it. I see, I see now why a young woman in the other side of the world who was pregnant and unmarried and was told by her boss that um, she would have to find a new job uh, was really powerless because she was part of a multinational corporation, but 
in a part of the world where that was not really seen as unacceptable behavior by your boss, but it really absolutely violated the um, policies of the multinational corporation. Where could she go? Who could help her? And what the Ombuds was able to do was to help uh, surface the issue, um, warn her boss that if her boss tried to retaliate against her pregnancy and being unmarried, that he would probably lose his job and also put something in the company newsletter um, with no names, but alerting supervisors that that was not consistent with company policies. So you can see how it helped that person and helped um, the company reinforce its global policies that apply. And so I've got a whole series, I probably have 600 pages of single space um, examples divided into 33 categories, only 200 of which they would put in the book for obvious reasons that it was limited in terms of scope. But there's a PDF um, a download available so you can get all of those. And when you read those stories over and over again in a whole variety of different contexts, you begin to see, ah, I see why, why having formal channels is not enough. And so for a powerless informal channel that doesn't investigate, doesn't make decisions or policies or tell people what to do, um, the ombuds really are very powerful in addressing the need for providing some guidance to many people who don't have that. And they're available at the highest levels and the lowest levels in the organization. So senior leaders have used them and, and uh, new people and entry level people have used them. You make a really important point, Chuck, on access. And I'm just really gonna quickly underscore for those of you that didn't catch the title, a new ABA publication of Chuck's just published 2021 um, that builds upon his work. And the title again, A Practical Guide to Organizational Ombuds, How They Help People and Organizations. Chuck, um, appreciating the narratives captured in your book, of course, maintaining confidentiality. How often do ombuds matters elevate or even aggravate to a formal process? Is there any statistics or oversight on that? I, I don't really have statistics, but um, many times they can, it's indirect. Um, and so I think maybe the best way would be for me to give you a couple of examples that, that might illustrate how an ombuds could work in this context. So, um, here are just a couple of them. The executive assistant of a senior vice president of an organization contacted the ombuds and said that she had a concern that she couldn't report to anyone, uh, not a formal channel or anybody else. And when the ombuds uh, probed a little bit further after explaining the confidentiality, turned out that this executive assistant was concerned that her boss, and she only worked for one person, um, she thought was cheating on his travel and expense reports. And um, obviously, if she reported it, only he and only she had dealt with them before they were submitted. He'd know who they who, who reported on him and, and she would be fired. Uh, but the ombuds was able to help her um, strategize. And ultimately, what they were able to do, uh, she gave the ombuds permission to go to the internal audit people in her organization and suggest that an internal audit be done of uh, all of the senior vice presidents at that level for maybe the third quarter or some limited period of time. So it didn't look like anyone in particular was uh, being uh, picked on. 
and um, actually spoke on a, on, a, on a program with the chief business practice officer in this organization at one point, who said, and when that happened in their organization, um, they found not one, but three <laughs> who, who had fraudulently submitted travel and expense reports and they fired all three. Um, so you see how, how it surfaced, but in a way that uh, dealt with the issue in this executive system was never identified and still at the company. Um, and so it really solves the fear of retaliation that keeps a lot of people from coming forward. The fear of uncertainty, am I right? That keeps a lot of people from coming forward. So that's, that's a very simple example, but that's not an unusual example of how um, the ombuds uh, can deal with that. Another example in a university context, and I'll try to keep this fairly short, is the university had a policy that uh, freshman week parties all had to have a monitor for alcohol um, uh, usage uh, to make sure that underage uh, students were not drinking. Um, it was clear that that policy was in effect. Um, a young woman in her first week of school went to a party uh, where there was alcohol, there was no monitor there, and she was sexually assaulted. Uh, fortunately, she had the good sense to tell her parents. The parents, uh, or at least one of the parents, had worked for the university. And so there was an issue of uh, the student receiving free tuition because of the parent's relationship with the university. And the parent came to see the ombuds and was aware of the policy, realized that the policy had been breached. Um, and um, the ombuds immediately started uh, strategizing on how there could be a win-win-win for everybody. Uh, because obviously to put the parents through the expense of hiring a lawyer to sue the university or the daughter through the trauma of reliving an experience as a plaintiff in a lawsuit um, or the university to the expense of defending uh, the, the uh, university when there was a clear breach of policy uh, was not acceptable. And yet what hung in the balance for the parents was the daughter wanted to withdraw and go to another university and it would have, was a private university, it was very expensive. It would have cost, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to do that. And the ombuds was able to work with the risk management people to find a way where um, the daughter was allowed to withdraw. The, the uh, university provided supplemental um, uh, tuition payments for the new university where the young woman had already been admitted. And um, the um, parents were happy, the daughter was happy to get a fresh start and the university avoided you know, serious reputational damage and extensive litigation um, over something that was kind of undefensible. Um, and so you can see how, how both the people and the, the uh, organization benefited from having this kind of a resource that could help uh, navigate that landscape. Those are uh, really helpful examples. Um, really honing upon how strategy becomes really important from an independent perspective, because sometimes we're too close to the issue to see all sides. Um, you know, Chuck, in closing, mindful of time, um, I wanted to ask you, what has been a goal of yours during your tenure at IOA? Something important that you wanted to implement um, with your rich career of, uh, of representing ombuds and doing various other things as a lawyer? 
Well, I wanted I wanted to make the case for why ombuds should be part of every organization, clearer and more accessible. Uh, that's why I wrote the second book to to make it. Uh, it's no less simple, but it's more simply presented. And then I think, and I've I've heard people respond to this over the years, um, that it, when you hear these stories it puts all the pieces together. So a large part of what I've been doing is helping organizations create new programs. I've been involved in uh, strengthening the standards of practice and the codes of ethics, uh, increasing the membership of IOA. Um, these are all, um, I think, uh, significant developments along the way. But, but more than anything, I wanted, um, even after I retire, some of what I've learned in this 30 plus year uh, history of dealing with ombuds issues to still be available um, kind of when, when I'm not part of that process and, and help people understand how all the parts fit together uh, along the way. So it's been a joy and I've loved every minute of it. Chuck, it has really been a pleasure. I hope to, in future discussions with you, tease out even more you know, issues as they pertain to confidentiality and otherwise, because it's certainly top of mind as we look at dispute resolution as a whole and the different avenues, informal or formal, that we proceed with. It has been a pleasure for those of you listening in, again, the latest work, please check it out, A Practical Guide to Organizational Ombuds, How They Help People and Organizations. Chuck Howard, thanks so much. It has been a pleasure. Thank you.